0: wonderful singing, just awesome, great hymns to honor our Lord. And uh, we have the opportunity to turn back to the Gospel of John this morning as we've been working our way through uh, this marvelous account of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, His identity as the Son of God, and, and the Messiah who came to save sinners from condemnation. And so, I invite you to Turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is a, a really remarkable miracle here in John chapter 11. It's uh, in some ways I was as I'm reading this I'm thinking you know I almost don't even really need to preach a sermon you you can almost just read John chapter 11 and just let it let it stand. It is that powerful and glorious and. Um, but I, I, do, I do think there are some, uh, a few truths in here. It's a longer passage we're going through this morning, so I, I won't address everything in it, um, but it is so rich, and, and I trust you will be encouraged by it this morning. Um, there's 44 verses uh, that we're going to uh, read this morning, and like I said, we, we won't look in detail at all of it, but uh, it is um, just a beautiful, beautiful miracle. Um, in fact, it's a miracle that, uh, that highlights, specifically, the purpose of it is to highlight the glory of Jesus. Jesus actually says that before he performs the miracle. And that's important for us to understand, uh, like I said this morning, about the glory of God. Um, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, the very first question in the catechism, some of you may know this, but it is this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Isn't that beautiful? The chief end of man, our chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, that phrase, to glorify, can either mean to make glorious or to declare to be glorious. Now, only God can make something glorious. Only God can make something glorious, such as he does with angels or even with us. Our glory that we have as created in the image of God comes because God made us in a sense, glorious in one sense of being standing above the rest of his creation. So only God can do that. It it is never a glory, though, that is equal to the glory of God. Our glory, with whatever it is that God gives to us and makes us glorious, will never equal the glory of God. It'll never match. Nothing in the world, the glorious things of the world, whether you talk about the stars in the heaven or the moon or the sun or the ocean or or the beautiful beaches of San Diego or the forests and the mountains, whatever you see in the world, as glorious as those things are, the Grand Canyon, they will never equal, even close to equal, the glory that belongs to God alone. And God says in his word that that glory which is his, he also will not give it to another. So God's glory is his glory. There is none matching, and he will not give that glory to another. So that glory God chooses to give to others, he chooses to give for his purpose and plan, but he will not give his own glory. God is infinitely glorious in himself, and therefore... God is not capable of additional glory. Does that make sense? He's not not capable of becoming more glorious than he already is. And he's not capable of losing glory. And so, when we think about our responsibility and duty to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, we are to understand that as his creatures, we cannot give God glory. We cannot give to him something which already belongs to him. We don't make God more glorious or less glorious than he already is in himself. We cannot bestow glory onto God. We can only do the other thing, which is to declare God's glory. That's all we can do. We can declare it to the nations. We can proclaim it. We can say this is God, and he is glorious. Well, we don't make him glorious, do we? We just declare it. God revealed his glory, like I said, and you see in the scriptures in Psalm 19 and so on, in all kinds of ways. He revealed it in scriptures. He, he revealed it in the Old Testament. Do you remember Moses was, said, Lord, let me see your glory in And the Lord says, well, I really can't let you see all of my glory, but I'll let you see my backside. And he put him in the cleft of the rock. Remember, he kind of hides him. And as God passes by him and Moses sees a glimpse of the backside of God's glory and Moses comes down from the mountain and he's like shining brighter, brighter than than the sun. And, and then you see like we read in Isaiah 6 where, where Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God in the temple and we didn't read it, but you keep reading in that passage and he says his robe filled, filled the temple. It spilled out of the temple. His glory was so, was so great when I, Isaiah sees it. And, and if you ever read Ezekiel, just try to read Ezekiel chapter 1 and try to understand what it's talking about. And Ezekiel there is having a vision of the glory of God, and it is so overwhelming that he, he can't really explain and understand the, fully the glory, the glory of God. And of all those revelations of God's glory, whether creation or to Moses or to Ezekiel, there is one revelation Of the glory of God that surpasses them all and that revelation of the glory of God there is no greater is the revelation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ our Lord there is no glory of God more perfectly depicted than in Jesus Christ our Savior and this is why Jesus even says of himself as we have saw in John. Remember he said in John 5.41, I do not receive glory from people. Do you remember when he said that? I don't receive glory from people. And what did he mean that by that? In other words, he's saying, I don't need to receive that which is already mine from people. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having one undivided glory that belongs to no other. It is, it is God's glory. And so in this miracle that we're going to read in John chapter 11, this last of these seven signs that Jesus does in this gospel that testify to his identity as the Son of God, um, this, this miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, after four days when he was dead is really the most dramatic and most powerful and it is has the unique the unique purpose of pointing us to the glory of god in jesus christ it 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 really brings to a to a to a pinnacle what john said in the very beginning of his gospel in chapter 1. Let me, let me read this. John 1, 14, 16, and 18. John opens his gospel, and here's how he, what he says. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And here in this passage, he does so in a marvelous, marvelous way. We are dead in our sin. Christ came to show us his glory that we might turn to him and be saved. So let's read John chapter 11 and hear the word of God, and then we will pray. John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this glorious account that John has written for us, an account that testifies to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection and life-giving power. We know, Lord Jesus, that there is none like you, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the creator of all things, who spoke the world into existence and even here on this occasion spoke a word about a dead man, Lazarus, and he came out of the tomb and he was alive again. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for that power that belongs to you alone and for what it means for our salvation through you, ultimately. We pray that you'd bless your word now as we look at it. In your name, Jesus, amen. So let's go through this passage a little bit. And what I, when I was going through it, I thought... I mean, the miracle stands on itself, the glory and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to raise the dead. But as you're reading the passage, there's also, there's so much there about Jesus and who he is. And, and having last week gone through this sovereignty of god remember we were talking about the sovereignty of god and how jesus is sovereign over salvation and and jesus sovereignly gave a man born blind sight and he heals him and jesus is sovereign over salvation and jesus has his elect sheep and there's one sense in which you can look at the sovereignty of jesus and rightfully realize just how glorious and powerful he is and we see that here in the miracle But there is a real beautiful component here in John chapter 11 in which you see that Jesus, and we'll get to the miracle, but you also see the the other aspect of Jesus, that he is sovereign, but you also see that in his sovereignty, he is also loving and compassionate. He, He is also tender towards those who are weak. He is tender towards us. He's sovereign, by all means. But he also cares deeply about us in his sovereignty. He, he wants to show us love. He wants to show us his compassion. And, and I think that that comes out in, in this, all of John chapter 11 here, what really came out, the two points before we get to the miracle itself, are the points of Jesus' love and compassion the sovereign king's loving and compassion. And, and you see that here where John begins his account by noting that a certain man, Lazarus, was ill. And so this is our first clue that John's point is not to emphasize the man, Lazarus, but the glory of Jesus, because he just calls him a certain man. And Lazarus and his sisters were from Bethany. Bethany is not the same Bethany beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist ministered. That's where Jesus currently is. This Bethany is a village in Judea about two miles outside Jerusalem. It's along the Jericho Road. It's on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus is actually where he is right now and where this Bethany is. He's probably about a 2 days journey away from Mary and Martha and where Lazarus died. And so apparently the early church was familiar enough with, with Martha and Mary and the family, because John here mentions, even before it takes place, that this is the Martha, this is the Mary who anointed the Lord's feet with oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And so they're already kind of who's reading this, if they're Christians, they already know this family from Bethany. And if 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 it's for Jewish people who are reading it, they've probably heard the testimony of this miracle before from Christians. And so John can just write it and say, this is that family that, that Mary washed the feet of Jesus. And so they're obviously very close friends with Jesus, um, and they knew Jesus was close with Lazarus. And so when they send message to Jesus, they, they send it like this. They say, Lord... He whom you love is ill. So when you think about Jesus and his interaction with people, you often think about him out there ministering in the public to people he hasn't seen before, and he certainly does that, right? He heals people, he's never seen them, he shows them kindness, and he's out there and he's healing. But there's a sense in which we kind of forget that Jesus, he had those inner circle of friends that he, that he also cares deeply for in his, in his relationship with them. And this is one of those families. Um, so when they think about Jesus and they think about their trials and they think about their, their difficulty that they're going through, what they think about in the midst of this trial and the concern for their brother is they know and think about Jesus' love for them they know that they are invited to reach out to Jesus any time that they want, and in love, Jesus would come and minister to them. I mean, think about the closeness of that relationship. How many friends, how many really, really good friends do you have in the world that you know that you can call them at any time? We don't, there's not many people like that, but Jesus is that kind of friend to those that belong to him. Jesus is that kind of friend. He has that kind of love for his children. And this is a picture of that love where of all the people they could call, when they thought about their trial and trouble, they said, you know what? I know who I'm gonna go to. We're gonna go to Jesus because Jesus loves us and he loves Lazarus. And so we will reach out to him. And so they do. And so when Jesus receives the message, he says to them, this illness does not lead to death. So he, he, he's saying, in other words, not that he, Lazarus isn't going to die, because he, he does die, but what he's saying is the end of this illness is not going to ultimately end in Lazarus' spiritual death. This is what Jesus is getting at here. He, he hears the message. He, he says, I know I heard that. Lazarus is ill, it's not going to ultimately end to death, and rather he says it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he says this sickness is for the glory of God. In in other words, God has, in Jesus's mind, ordained this sickness of his friends whom he loves He ordained their calling of Jesus. He ordained his going to Lazarus so that Jesus might make himself known and his glory might be manifested to them in a powerful way. And so this is how Jesus sees it, another opportunity to display himself as the Son of God. And so Jesus' love for them is demonstrated here in that it's tangible, it's visible, everyone sees it, and Jesus puts it on display for them as he goes then to meet with them. And so why does John bring it up? Why does John say that when, um, if you'll notice there, he says, this does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then John says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why does John say again that Jesus loved them? And I think the reason he brings that up is because he doesn't want us to think that when Jesus hears of the sickness, and you'll notice he stays two more days before going, he doesn't want us to think that Jesus is so callous and hardened, that even though his friend is dying, he he doesn't go in two days. You might have expected him to run, but Jesus instead, he stays. Even though he loves them, he doesn't go immediately. Now, the question you might ask yourself is, well, if Lazarus is ill and Jesus can get there to heal him, why does Jesus not immediately go? He loves them, He cares for them. Why does Jesus then decide to basically wait two more days until Lazarus dies? Well, for one thing, Jesus is on God, the Father's divine schedule. He's doing everything the Father wants him to do. We've already seen that. But secondly, far from being callous, this decision to wait two days was also I think motivated by his love for him, for love for them, in in the sense that Jesus knows that Lazarus is gonna die, and Jesus knows that he's going to come there and raise Lazarus, and because he loves them, he wants them to know the certainty of Lazarus's death and what he can do for them. Jesus wants them to see and to know that Lazarus is really dead. And I'm going to come and raise him again. And he does it so that they might be strengthened in their faith, so that they might come more to rest in him. This is his purpose for, I think, staying two more days, to teach them that they can trust Jesus to do what is right and good, even when things don't seem to be going as we would desire. It is for his glory and for their good. And so we also see Jesus and his love for not just that family, but for all of his disciples. And you see that, you know, when Jesus says we're going to Judea, his disciples are concerned for him. They know that his life has already been threatened there. They don't want him to die by going back. And so Jesus basically reminds them, he says that he's safe, basically, as long as he's abiding in the Father's will. His time is going to come for the cross, but before that appointed time, Jesus says, I am here to minister in the world while there is day. I am the light of the world, and you too are to minister with me. So he loves them and he wants them to trust him, to depend on him, to follow him. They they don't need to fear losing him. And so Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, he's just saying, "Trust, trust me, do what I've ordained for you to do, follow me. I'm going to the cross, but not yet. Everything is going to be fine. And so he's comforting them. And so Jesus is concerned for their strength of their faith, their trust, their walk. He, he's showing himself as a sovereign God who cares about his people and even says, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you might believe. And then he says, let us go to him. Let us go to Lazarus. And so they go. So this tenderness of Jesus with his disciples and their weakness, even at the end there with Thomas, (laughs) you notice that? Thomas, he he says, let us go also that we may die with him. So all the things that Jesus had just said, even Thomas is still like, okay, he's going to go die. Let's go with him. And so Jesus is loving and he's patient with them. But he's also extremely, you see, his compassion here for the hurting. Scripture tells us, God tells us, that he, God, is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And that he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So when Jesus came into the world, he didn't come into the world because it is a perfect and a happy place. Jesus came into the world because something is terribly wrong with the world, right? And when he saw people suffering in the world, which he created, he didn't delight in it, but he grieved over it. And he grieved with the world and with people in sin. And he was so deeply moved by the sorrow and death of his friends, uh, death of his friend Lazarus, and the, the sorrow of his friends. That he even wept with them, John said. He wept with them. But there's another aspect to that. We'll get to that. But Jesus understood what it was to suffer, to be stricken with grief. He experienced the fallen nature of this world. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, despised and rejected, hated by the proud, willingly poor with no place to lay his head, reviled and a suffering servant, and he was put to death and crucified by the hands of lawless men. Jesus knows when we suffer. And so he heads out to go to this funeral, and on his way there, Martha comes out to see him. And she's overcome with grief, and she runs to see Jesus. Why does she run to see Jesus? Because she knows Jesus. She knows his compassion and his kindness, she believed that Jesus is able to do more, that Jesus is not just an ordinary man. Jesus offered something more than earthly comfort, and she knows this. And so she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that you, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's not thinking Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. She's just thinking, I've not lost confidence in you, Jesus. I'm still trusting you, Jesus. I'm still coming to you. But she's filled with pain. She's filled with grief. She knows Jesus is there. And she's basically confirming her confidence and trust in Jesus. Whatever you ask, I know, Jesus, that you're uniquely with God. And so that... So she's not thinking about Lazarus' raising from the dead. But then Jesus gives her this gracious promise, very gentle, very gracious to her, and he tells her something absolutely remarkable. He says to her, your brother will rise again. And the con- what conclusion does she draw from that? She draws the same conclusion that you and I would have drawn. She draws the conclusion that when Jesus says, Your brother will rise again she draws her own conclusion that Jesus must be talking about the final day of the resurrection yes Jesus I know and you are so loving and so compassionate for you to come here and to be with us and I know that everything that you ask the father will do and Jesus says I'm gonna raise Lazarus from the dead and she thinks I know something in the future that is going to happen, right? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection, she says. And so Jesus, he's so patient with us. She didn't get it, what he was really saying, but he's so patient and he sees this seed of faith in her and then he tells her these words. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her, Martha, do you believe this about me? Jesus is saying whether it's a future resurrection or whether it's living today right now in me, If you're in me, you will rise in the future, and if you're in me today right now, you will see and receive eternal life right now so that you will never die. And that's what he's saying to her. And so, whoever believes in me, he says, do you believe this, Martha? Do you personally believe that I am the resurrection and the life? You can see his gentleness here. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world, And so Jesus shows the same compassion for Mary. Martha leaves, goes to her sister Mary, who now comes to Jesus, and Jesus, you'll notice, is calling for her. She's so overstricken with grief, Jesus reaches out and calls for her. She's so broken, she can't come, but he comes out and he reaches to her, and she comes to Jesus. But you'll notice something different than Martha. Mary comes to Jesus and not on, it's not Mary's fault, but the whole crowd comes with Mary. So the whole, and this is important, the whole crowd comes with Mary to see Jesus now. And she's running to, to the God of all comfort, and it's, John says, when she came to him and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him the same thing Martha said, if you were here. But now there's all these people around, okay? It's not a private meeting. There's all these people around, and and you actually see Jesus has here both compassion for Mary, but there's also a sense in which Jesus is, is, has a mixture of anger toward what the scene is. Because Jewish custom dictated that even a poor family was anything, and this family wasn't poor, but a poor family is supposed to have at least two fl- flute players and professional wailing woman at a funeral. This is what they were supposed to have. And some other cultures still do that, in fact. Not in my family, because we don't need professional wailers. They, <laughs> they just, on my grandfather's funeral, wow. You might have thought it was full of professional wailers, but that's how we are. We're just got that kind of vibe. But anyway, you're supposed to have these two flute players, this professional wailer, and this is a wealthy family. We know that from chapter 12, right? They have the ointment. They have dinner for everyone. And so there's probably multiple flute players, probably a lot of professional wailers. And when Mary runs out to Jesus, they're all going with, them, with her to Jesus. So now Jesus is looking at this situation, this spectacle. Just imagine people wailing and crying and, and you know, going going off, throwing themselves on the floor. This is what they would do, you know, and throwing dust and ashes on themselves, crying, crying loud and playing flutes and everything and this whole spectacle. And Jesus sees a lot of professional grief going on there. And, and, and John says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and great, greatly troubled. What that means, deeply moved and greatly troubled, that word for, it could be translated as outraged or has indignation toward the spectacle. The word um, I read in MacArthur commentary and, and and another commentary the word for outrage means literally to snort like a horse. So so the idea here is not that Jesus is he is grieving with them he is sorrowful for them but he's he's also angry at the spectacle that that they're going on he he's got this mixture of compassion and and anger with them and he he snorts at them. Like, what, what, is going, what is going on here? And, and, and so the question, can it, is it possible for God to be angry about the spectacle and at the same time sorrowful for them? I think it is. Just like when Jesus went into Jerusalem, weeping over the city after he pronounces woes on them. So Jesus is angry at their hypocrisy. His people are acting like they're in despair and without hope. He's angry at the consequence of sin in a fallen world. He's saddened by the sin and consequence of it on his friend Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He doesn't take delight in it. And so you see this mixture of Jesus here. He's compassionate and yet hates sin and unrighteousness. So the Jews said how he loved him. Now, here's the main main point. You see his love. You see his compassion. And so when he gets there, Jesus is deeply moved. He comes to the tomb, a cave with a stone laid against it. What a picture, right? Of his own burial. And Jesus says, take away the stone, Martha. Take away the stone. And Martha, in her weakness says there's going to be an order, he, odor, Lord, he's been dead four days. She still doesn't get it. And so he reminds her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they take away the stone, and Jesus calls out, and Lazarus comes out of the grave. He raises physically from the grave. Now, Lazarus is ultimately gonna die again, right? Jesus demonstrates his authority over physical death, but more importantly in this passage is the fact that this resurrection, this glorious power of Jesus as the resurrection and the life is a picture of what he's ultimately going to do on the cross. Jesus would ultimately manifest his glory when he was crucified on the cross for our sins and he would ultimately confirm the truth of what Jesus said to Martha. When Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sin, he shed his blood to pay the price for sinners. He pays the price for sinners for people like Mary and Martha who believe on him. He dies in the place of sinners so that they can receive eternal life. He came to pay the debt for sin to pay the debt for our sin. We who are dead in our trespasses and sin, Jesus came to lay down his life to take your filthy and tattered clothes, no matter what it is, and he covers you in his robe of righteousness so that when we stand before our maker, when we die and we leave this world, we will be called not guilty and he will accept us on the basis of what Jesus has done in our place. And the way that we know that his sacrifice was acceptable before God, the way that Mary and Martha and Lazarus knew that, that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable was not because Lazarus was risen from the grave. Do you understand? That is a sign. It's not that Jesus can raise Lazarus from the grave, therefore he can forgive us of our sin. Do you understand that? That is a sign that everything Jesus would do, he has accomplished. And so that sign reminded Mary and Martha and Lazarus and us that when Jesus died to take our sin, what did he do after three days? he rose again. And because Jesus rose again after three days, after paying the price for our sin, we can know that Jesus indeed is the resurrection and the life, and that those who believe in him will never die. He has power over life and death, and he gives life to all those who repent of their sin and trust him to save them. When you die, beloved, in Christ, you will die and you will be brought into glory. And you will never die again. You might die physically in this world but you will always be alive in Christ. He indeed is the resurrection and the life. And beloved, we can trust him to know that he is sovereign, he is loving, he is compassionate, and he is able to accomplish what he came to accomplish. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your power, for your tenderness, for your mercy, for your compassion. We know that you are a sovereign king who reigns over the heavens and the earth, who reigns over sickness and death, that there is no one who dies that you have not ordained the death of. There is no one who is sick that you have not ordained the sickness of. And we know that you are over all of these things and you permit them and ordain them for your glory, but you also permit them for our good And we know that in the midst of these trials that people face and we face, that you love us and you are still compassionate towards us. That though you are sovereign, you have not left your sovereignty to overwhelm your compassion and mercy, but they perfectly work together, Lord Jesus. And so we are grateful that you are also the resurrection and the life that you will raise from the dead all those who believe on you and you have given us eternal life, that you have laid down your life as a ransom to take our sin that we might live and then you rose yourself from the grave after three days so that we might be justified in your sight and that is all your work, it is all you're doing, Lord Jesus. And like you called Mary to believe in you, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to believe and to remain strong in the faith that you are who you say you are. You are the Son of God, the Messiah, and eternal life is received through you alone. And so help us to continue to believe, to remain faithful and strong, to be bold with the truth, to not hold it back, but to live according to it. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this testimony We thank you for being our Savior, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.